The Lord be with you, everyone. And I want to share with you tonight um, sort of an odd way of looking at Jesus and then of ourselves. But I believe there's something of supreme importance here. And so stay with me and let us look at this. Um, And to begin, I want to read some passages from John chapter 1, which is one of the greatest introductions to Jesus. Let me read it. In the beginning was the Word. And actually, a better translation would be, in the beginning, the Word already was. He, He is already there before the beginning. And the Word was with God, which means face-to-face with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. They sure didn't get it. And then further down, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and much better than that, it should be dwelt in us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that is, as I say, the most incredible introduction to the life of Jesus here in the earth. He is the final word of God. He is the very logic and reasoning of God. And yet it says that he was unknown. They didn't understand. They went on in their darkness. And that he, this God from God, came and lived in us. He came inside our humanity, lived among us. Now, Christian art if you're familiar with that, that general term, Christian art, whenever Jesus is depicted, he stands out. You can't miss him because he's got a halo around his head. And now I know what the artist is trying to do. I know that. But it, it misses the point because the reality was the reverse. The gospel reveals that Jesus lived among us. And I just want to feel it, that he who is the word from whom all creation came into being, 
now becomes a member of his creation, lives in a third world village, in a back street side of the human race, and nobody notices him. Did you understand? There was no light around his head. He did not look odd or weird or different. And when he did claim to be no more than God I am, he was looked upon as the ravings of a blaspheming madman because they didn't comprehend, they didn't understand who this was. I mean, join right from the very beginning and get over what we've been sort of taught as Christians. He was born in a truck stop in Bethlehem, and he was laid in the trough where the animals came to feed because there was nowhere else to put the newborn. And so our introduction to God joining us and living among us I say the introduction was a cry of a baby in the middle of the night as newborn, and his first cry, he joined the human race like every other human. And the virgin birth, and the fact that Mary, his mother, was that virgin, and the angels that sang to the shepherds, plays in the background And as far as 99.5 of all of of the human race never knew about that. I say that was sort of a a background canvas. The shepherds knew because they'd been there when the angels sang. Uh, Joseph knew the virgin birth, but that was it. The rest of mankind heard the cry of a newborn baby coming out of that wretched scene where donkeys and cows and camels were herded together, he looked just like everyone else. And six weeks later, when they take that baby into the temple for the rituals that came at that point in Jewish life, um, he looked just like a six-week-old babe That was in the arms of a very young mother and a father, that's what it looked like, and they were in the temple courtyard with everybody pushing and shoving. I mean, can you get the picture? This was the meeting place of Jews from all over the world, and so it was as a melee. There was a sort of, you know, the chaos of a railroad station. Everybody is urgently going somewhere to do something that's in turn with why they're there. And so the couple who come from far north, they're sort of peasants down in the big city, they're they're like from West Virginia standing on Times Square, and and they're clinging to the baby. Boy, this does not look like God himself has joined the human race. And suddenly out of the crowd comes a very ancient old man, and his name was Simeon, and he, he looks, and he takes the babe, And he says, mine eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen the glory of your people. He said, this is him. 
and no one even bothered to listen except the stunned couple. And he holds the baby and he recognizes who he is because the Holy Spirit has revealed and the Holy Spirit sent him into the temple to find. And there was another old, old woman called Anna who, who and she too recognized. But that was without the help of a halo, you understand. That was because the Holy Spirit revealed to them. As far as they were concerned, an old man looked like the grandfather must have seen the grandkids. I don't know. But no one realized, no one had a clue who that baby was. Okay, fast forward. He looked like a two-year-old playing with toys on the floor just like any other two-year-old. And then there comes to the door the most unexpected visitors, that they were those, they called them the Magi, the wise men, call them what you will. Um, and there was more than three, that's all legend, just because they brought three gifts. No, there, there, there was this group of very important, officious looking persons who come to the door. And they, they are convinced that this, this baby, now toddler, he is the one that is the king of the cosmos. And they come in. Can, can you take it in? Oh, yes, we, we know the story of the great light of God in the sky that led them there. But that was not common knowledge. They knew that, and they'd shared it, sort of, in Jerusalem with, with the priests. But generally speaking, people didn't know that. And so there was these very important persons with their camels laden in that back street. And, and they come and they bring their gifts. They fall down and they worship him. Anybody watching, say, what on earth is going on? That these persons who look as if they know something and they look as if they're foreigners come from a long way away, and yet they are worshipping a two-year-old kid. Um, yeah, they didn't realize who this one was that looked and acted and talked like a two-year-old child. They did not realize that this was God who had come to live among us and was sharing our existence and life to the point where he shared it as a two-year-old, age-appropriate. Hmm. Then, of course, they go to Nazareth, and they turn up there, refugees from Egypt. Do you remember that? Because Herod, that half-mad dictator, pseudo-king, had heard that the wise men were there to worship, and and they he he wanted to know how old is this child that you're going? Well, they worked it out about two years old, and and so when they had gone, he had sent his soldiers to kill every two-year-old. You say they didn't go looking for a two-year-old that glowed like a candle in the dark. They didn't know. It just And so therefore comes the hideous massacre of the children of Nazareth 
because of that mad king. And the angel had warned Joseph, you remember, and they went into Egypt. And then they came out of Egypt and went on their way back to Nazareth, carrying the child who is now significantly older by year two. And they come back to Nazareth. And there he's just a boy who's in the synagogue school and he's taught by the rabbi and he plays stickball in the street with the others. He's one of us to the max. Who ever dreamed that they were playing stickball with God from God, light from light? No. And then he became the apprentice to his supposed father, Joseph. And he became the carpenter. As the years ticked by, he's into his late teens, and now he is the carpenter. And, and, and there's the sign over the door. And everybody in Nazareth knew him. He is Jesus, the carpenter. Most people, especially of that age and day, would have used him as the carpenter. They were the shepherds, and they were the guys who went fishing, and they had their boats, and he was the one who repaired. He was the one who made your fences for your farm. He made the gates. He, everybody knew him. He was the carpenter. No, no, no glowing around his head, you say. Nothing about him that even suggested that he who is making gates for the farmers was the one who made the entire cosmos. Never, never thought that. Never, that, that would never enter their head. You see, he wasn't defined by the sign that was over his shop. It said there, Jesus a carpenter. Well, it can say that all at once. And that he was, he was. But on the other hand, he wasn't. He was infinitely, infinitely more than the sign over the door. He wasn't defined by that. I mean, join him at any point in his life. Join him. He wakes up in the morning to face another day, like every other person in the Galilee. He washed from the well water, that was brought in probably the night before by him. Ate breakfast, went to the shop, think about that, think about that. How can I put into words what I see? That the act of washing a human body has now become elevated to the most incredible act because God himself has joined us in the act. God became flesh and washed his body in the mornings and other times. Do you, do you realize the act of eating, eating breakfast, eating lunch, has become a sacred act because God became one of us and had the need to eat breakfast and lunch and dinner and did so and talked over the meal. Please, just, just think about it. When, when we do it today, have you ever realized you're now doing something that God himself has joined us in? Talked over meals, about stuff, 
I mean, it did not sit at meal and, and, and begin with a great exegesis of Ezekiel. No, they just talked like Galilean peasants. And he went to weddings like everybody else in Nazareth. He went to the parties, went to the games. There was nothing or off. I mean, everything about him was so ordinary. God sat at meal and talked about the weather, talked about the way the sheep are going to get blown by the cold who are up in the mountains and talked to the fishermen about, well, the good fishing weather. You know. huh. One of us? One of us? He's so one of us. The latest news of the Romans who had their, their fort very close by and and that was the, the the curse of living in Nazareth, that the streets were always full of Roman soldiers who despised the Jews because they were the Roman army of oppression. And so, so they would mock them, punch them, kick them to the side. Oh, plenty of news about the Romans. And they knew simple joys. Oh, not the complicated joys of living in the USA. I mean simple joys of a third world country. And he felt the pain of life like everybody else. And in his store, it wasn't that you walked into something that sort of trembled quietly as you come into a holy place. No, it was a carpenter shop. And, and they, no one realized that holiness was not all that other stuff. It was simply this person standing there with the... <laughs> chisel in his hand and the, the wood ready to be fashioned. And the people who came in, some were nice and some were very appreciative, but there were angry people, angry people. They were always are if you're in business. And he had to deal with them, had to deal. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath and they read the scripture. And the rabbi said something about it. And no one realized that the scripture they read was really about that carpenter sitting halfway back there. No one ever knew that as the rabbi talked about the coming Messiah, that he was already there sitting in the back. Never, no, no indication, no indication. We, see, we don't have pictures like this, no. But that's the truth, that's what happened. He was an Israelite. As the nation he chose to be born into, as a descendant from Abraham and all the covenant promises that flowed from that. He was the seed of Abraham that was spoken of in Genesis, an Israelite. And here he is, at one of the worst times in Israel's history, as they are, as I said, oppressed, already conquered by Rome. And so now he's one of the peasants and he's paying taxes. Oh, did they ever pay taxes? They paid taxes to the temple, which of course is uh, what well, really when they say tithing. Tithing was a temple tax, and it wasn't a tenth. That, that's a myth of the 21st century. It was more like 20% plus over a three-year period. There was another 10%, so it was 25% of your wages went to temple tax. But then the Romans put a terrible tax on them, and that's where the tax collectors of the gospel come in. And so the Romans uh, just sucked them dry. 
took from their pittance of a salary all they wanted, along with everybody else in Galilee. He was one of everybody else. And really, and you might really miss this, that he was very ordinary in terms of the religious people of the day, which were primarily the Pharisees. And the Pharisees sometimes brought it up because they they didn't get it, Um, you know, because of who people thought he was as he began to speak and minister, though they never got anywhere near the truth about that. But certainly he was looked upon as his life unfolded as, as this holy person, but then the religious said, oh, you, you don't fast, you see. You don't fast, and you look too happy. I mean, anyone knows if you are religious, you're supposed to have a little sadness on your face. Miserable would be much better, because you're religious, you see. You can't enjoy life. You can't. You're, you're sitting there, and you're eating. Good grief, you're supposed to fast at least. And the fact you're eating with the most terrible people, um, and you're laughing and you're joking with them, and they're enjoying it too. This is disgusting because miserable religious people do not enjoy other people. Don't you get it? Where are the rules that govern your life? You're religious. You're supposed to have rules, aren't you? You don't have any rules. It's most upsetting. Jesus didn't have any outward religious separation. Have you ever thought about that? That's massive. When God when God became a human being, he didn't act like a religious person. I love that. Um, religion can sure do some weird things. And, and they can really you know, put the pressure on, even if it comes to prayer, you know, you've got to lose sleep at least, make, make God impressed, um, you lose sleep because you're going to pray and, and, and um, you, know, you know, miss meals, do, do anything to make this body upset, do anything to get a miserable look on your face and then, then you're religious. And here comes Jesus. And he doesn't do any of those things. And the people who followed him have never been so happy in all their life. I say it again, there was no religious separation. That made him an oddball. And then he made friends, and I mean deep friends, because he ate with them and drank, which in those days meant that there was a kind of covenant existing. It was called table fellowship. He was laughing, eating, drinking with notorious sinners, tax collectors, the betrayers of the people. He sat down and ate with them. Even though the synagogue read out the names of those he sat down and ate with and said they were damned in hell forever. But Jesus sat with them, made him best friends. And, and on top of that, he had women who were in his larger band of followers and in that was a day of misogyny where women were not only discounted, they were looked upon as zeros. You know, you know, in that day that Jesus lived, a woman could not testify in court because she was looked upon as unable to think straight or give any sort of answer that was in any way applicable to the rest of uh, people. I, uh, 
So, he, he, I mean, they would look at that, a woman that's following you. And not only that, but they, some of them were prostitutes that his lives had been changed and whatever it means, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils, whatever that means. But she certainly had not been with a reputation of holiness, that's for sure. That's fascinating to me. Holiness. Let's put it bluntly. He screwed up every idea that people had of holiness and revealed holiness as a simple love for God and for people and living in love. Look, look can, I, can I put it like this? That we, we look... I say we, I, I speak in that sense of the general population, that when it comes to God, well, you, you think of power, power, you see, power. And, and, and God does powerful stuff, you know. And so when there's going to be a hurricane, of course, God does that. Of course, that's, that looks just like God, doesn't it? Come and kill you all. Um, and, and, and so we, we look at God as... You know, earthquake, hurricane. We always that's an act of God, God's power. It's not very nice power. He's, he's God, you see. And, and so he's, he's sitting up on his high throne and he looks at us and says, smite. And, and bam, something terrible happens. I mean, that, that's God. That's God. Um, God, well, he knows everything. Because that has been twisted by Satan to be a Santa Claus that knows every bad thing you've done all year, and and, and you're you're therefore not going to get your gifts. That, that's God. That's God. You see, knows everything. Knows everything. He's everywhere. We're, we've got signs up around San Antonio. They offend me deeply because, <clears throat> well, that that's not true. It's not worth getting offended about. But they they portray this God. Uh, that, that humans have invented. And one of them, you know, it's as the rush hour traffic is going, they pick that up with this big sign to say, um, I'm coming down there to get you, signed God. Um, how disgusting, you know. God all present, God all knowing, God all power. He doesn't like us. Huh. Well, when the real God showed up, in our humanity as one of us, do you realize there were no smitings? There were no lightning bolts of power. He didn't show up in a Superman outfit. Because again, that is a satanic twist on what we think of when we think of God. Superman, you know, come and smash everything and get his job done. No. <laughs> Turned up. It's a peasant in a little village in the Galilee with a sign over the door saying he was a carpenter. How come? How come? I mean, did he stop being God? No, it's, I'm sorry. It, it's you that has the wrong idea of what God looks like. God doesn't look like Superman. God doesn't go around smashing people's lives. He doesn't send us hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and then says, repent. No, that was all invented by humans. That's the stuff, the grist mill of religion. Why is Jesus fully God living such a simple life? Because 
the, the Bible says, Jesus revealed it is the absolute final truth. God is love. He is not power. He does acts of power, but all of his acts of power are love acts. God is love. And therefore, when he became a simple peasant in the Galilee, he was fully God because he loved. And when you walked into his carpenter's store, you did not meet with a lightning bolt, but you were met by one who loved you incredibly, and you couldn't put your finger on it, but you knew somehow you were the beloved. But again, I say, he didn't look like it. You felt it. He sort of left question marks all over the place but you didn't know what or why. As far as you were concerned, he was your next-door neighbor. And then, do you remember there at the end, when the disciples, oh, Lord, right up to the very, I mean, tonight Jesus is going to begin suffering towards crucifixion. And that night, before the meal, they, the 12 of them, they're arguing like a bunch of politicians as to who is the greatest and who will have this or that position in the coming kingdom of God. And it's come to a point where they're now very, what can I say, quiet. Although you can feel simmering under the silence, they're quiet anger at each other because each believes they should have the place of authority, power. And that meant no one had washed anybody's feet, which was an absolute in those days. Somebody would kneel at the door with a bowl of water and wash the dusty feet of those who had walked along the roads and anoint with sweet-smelling oil. It was just the custom. And if you were not rich enough to have servants... And if, by the way, if you did have servants, it would be the lowest servant who would do that. Then then the youngest person there, usually some young teenage boy, would kneel and wash the feet. But See, so John, I suppose, if you look for the order of age, John should have been there. He was the youngest disciple. But no one's moved. No one, no one, no one is going to kneel at anybody's feet in this place and say that, you know, I'm lower than you and I wash your feet. And do you remember this one? Jesus got up and girded with a towel and washed the feet of every one of them. And, and in so doing was saying, I love you and I serve you. And here they, they've been arguing as to who is the greatest. And it was all greatest in terms of Jesus. Where shall I sit in relation to him? Now, he is the one that washes their feet. I said he wasn't defined by the sign over the door. He certainly wasn't defined by the work he did. This was, as I say, 
Well, John the Baptist mentioned foot washing when he said that he was not worthy to unlatch the sandal. Do you remember that? He said, I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not worthy to unlatch the sandal. What's he talking about? Well, that's what you did just before you washed their feet. You took off their sandals. And John Baptist said, I'm not worthy even to wash his feet. I'm not worthy to, to take the shoes off. Well, that one has now taken the shoes off each one of the, the twelve, including Judas, who's about to go and betray him, washes his feet. Huh. There's no halo around his head. He looks like a lowly servant, but then he's not defined by his work. And of course, within a few hours of that, he looks like a beaten peasant of the Galilee. It happened every few months. There would be somebody who said they were Messiah, and they would have some sort of rebellion against Rome, and Rome, of course, would catch them, beat them, hang them on a cross, and they would die agonizingly. Well, it looks like it's happened again. There he is, hanging on a cross, beaten to a pulp, so the Scripture says you couldn't recognize him as a man. The beaten peasant dying by crucifixion, crushed by the Roman forces. Ho-hum, let's go on to the next one. And nobody, even Satan, did not realize that he who hung on that Christ cross was 100% human, yes, but he was 100% God descending into our hell and loosing our chains, exposing Satan's lie and rising out of that death, carrying the human race with him. Oh, yes, didn't look like it. The soldiers who beat him never realized that he at that very moment was bearing their sin and carrying that sin to death that he might bring salvation to them. Now, let your mouth drop a little further. Can you imagine the very people that put Jesus to death were included in his death, and he said of them, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. See, he is God. He had to be God, or he's useless to us. He would have just been another human caught in the spider's web of Satan's lies. He is God. He is God specifically come to restore us, rescue us, and bring us to our eternal destiny. But he is God inside our flesh, one of us, because he is, if he isn't one of us, he cannot take our place. He cannot be the representative who will carry our sin in his own body on the cross. <coughs> oh, no. He is the mystery that was hidden from the beginning, God inside humanity. 
And, and that, of course, is the eternal desire. What, why did God create? What, why are we here? Did God just create a cosmos because he, he needed to be a dictator, you know? Did he just make everybody because he needed someone to boss around? And, and I'm not being a character. I'm, I'm very serious. I'm asking you, why, why are we here? Because to listen to some people, God's passion was that he would govern the universe and, and give humans a lot of rules that they didn't keep so that he would become eternally irritated with us. Well, that doesn't sound like much of a plan, does it? Now, if you read the entire Bible without the glasses of religion, you will realize it was the eternal desire of the God who loves us. It was his eternal desire that he should be God inside our humanity. He loved us and willed to be one with us, most literally. He, he would know what it is for a human creature to talk with him even as God the Son talks to him. He willed to bring us into the dance of the Holy Trinity, that we should share and be included in that. That was why he made us. That we, in our minds, our created human minds, might be enlightened by divine light to know him, understand him, to have emotions that are penetrated by the joy of the Lord, by the peace of God. And bodies, bodies that would actually be the temple, the dwelling place of God. That's why he made us. And Jesus is that. He comes. And what you're looking at in Jesus in these last few minutes, for that we were created. Yes, we were created. Jesus did not come to reveal to us an abstract God. He came to reveal the God who willed that we should be even as he. So in that he came to reveal to us who we are. He didn't come to set you an example. That would be daft. It's not telling you try and be like God, like the rest of religious stuff. No, he created you to say, look at me. I'm not only revealing to you this God who loves you beyond all explanation or measurement, but I'm revealing to you who you are created to be who I've come to rescue you to participate in. Huh. See, God came not to put on a show. But that, in fact, let, let's go further. He didn't come to tell us that being who we were created to be would be putting on a show. It would be like I've been describing a very ordinary life. Uh, and look up in your dictionary or thesaurus what ordinary means. It means not different. It means there's no special distinctive features. 
not impressive. What shall I say? Usual, commonplace. You know, standard version of the routine. Mundane, unexceptional, unremarkable, not standing out. Doing life as it's always been done. Same old, same old. That's ordinary. Actually, if we're honest, ordinary describes most of us. You know, ordinary. You got up in the morning the same as I did. You did your bathroom stuff the same as I did. You had a breakfast. Hey, we're still on the same page. This is getting very ordinary. You know, nothing nothing extraordinary happened. And you go and do what you do, and good grief, it's what you did every Tuesday. Uh, and so it goes on, ordinary. That, that's being human, essentially. And so God became flesh, he became us, and, and lived a very ordinary human life in a very ordinary third-world country. I say again, he didn't look like we expect God to look. And you do understand what we expected is... that That's the wrong. It isn't that God missed something in... No. We have such this twisted view of God, that when the real God showed up, we didn't recognize him because we didn't think God was like that. He was God unnoticed. Uh, and, and you can, you can lose that in your theology. We are looking at the most extraordinary person that ever lived on the planet, but he lived what at least looked like an ordinary mundane life. He is God the Son, God from God, and He's inside our human flesh. And of course, the Holy Trinity cannot be divided. So that means, in fact, when He joins our flesh and becomes one of us, the Holy Trinity is also there. You could say the very center of all that God is and does is now in a carpenter shop in Nazareth. For where God the Son is, there is the Father and the Spirit. And, and this is what it looks like. So jolly ordinary. He's not even walking through the streets looking like God and saying, bow down and worship. <laughs> no, that's all religion, you see. Boy, religion's got us hooked, hasn't it? We expect him to sit down in the mayor's seat. Isn't he sovereign God? No. No, that, that's, that's more like what religion would, would think of. I, Satan tried to make him like that, didn't he? He said, look, if you're the son of God, see it. Satan never did get a hold of this. He said, if you are, well, then, then turn these stones into bread. I mean, if you want people to 
follow you? Wouldn't it be a good idea if you could just turn stones into bread and feed the poor? Make a jolly good show, too. Remember, Jesus absolutely refuses. Satan, again, okay, you, you want the crowds, don't you? you I mean, if you're, if you're going to influence anybody, you really should have a few, few people in the crowd. What, why not go to the topmost peak of the temple and, and then jump and, and you're, you're becoming down into the courtyard and then do you remember in the scripture it says about angels who, that they catch you? Boy, can you imagine? That would be news from east to west. Everybody would come and listen to you. I mean, if you're the son of God, at least look like it. <coughs> you remember? And of course, Jesus refused because that's the kind of God that Satan invented and religion sponsored. But the real God doesn't do stuff like that. Oh, because God is love. He's not show-off power. He's love. And his great acts of power were empowering love. See, you say, well, he, he healed the sick. Yes, and if you read the scripture carefully, it says he was moved with compassion on the sick, and then he healed them out of his compassion. And you know, compassion means with passion. It means passion that stands and unites with you and weeps with you and feels with you. He didn't just go around doing miracles. He was not the super doctor. It was God weeping over broken humanity and healing them because he loved them. That's why he taught. He doesn't stalk up to the pulpit and now like a lecturer give. It says he was moved with compassion and taught the people because he saw what religion had done to them. No, you see, we get it all upside down. He's, I say it again, is defined by love and such a simple love. There's no drawing attention to him as he walks the streets of Nazareth. Or even when he, he's in the height of his healing and miracles and everything else we know of him, even then he said, let's go to the next village while they're not watching, you know. And when the people said, we make you a king, make you a king, he ran off up the mountain. No, he didn't come for that didn't come for that. He would just love in the most simple fashion as he was involved in the social life of the Galileans. He lived in the awareness of the love of his father. He delighted in being delighted in by his father and the Holy Spirit who was the very presence that surrounded him inside, outside and in that spirit, he knows his father. In his humanity, he knew there's no separation from the father. In that, he knows that he's absolutely accepted. He's become a human being and is now imparted into humanity. This knowledge that God's not 
against you. He's not separated from you. He's not waiting to be appeased. Oh, he loves you. And in my humanity, I'm teaching humanity just to be and loved by the Father. He learned to listen to that inner voice of the Father. He learned to see himself through the eyes of the Father. And in his human mind, he learned to receive and think and imagine the words and plans of his Father. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, enabling him to love to the extreme. And so when he did reveal his identity in Nazareth, do you remember that? Boy, that was a day. They called him to read the Scripture. And so he chooses the Scripture, Isaiah 61, and begins to read it. But then he says, this day is this Scripture fulfilled. He says, here I am. This, what Isaiah said 700 years ago, is me. It's fulfilled in your ears. And they went ballistic. And they said, look, we know who you are. You've lived here for 30 years. And and you've been our carpenter. What's gone wrong with you? Have you gone mad? We know you're, you're, you're just a peasant like us. And they raged at him because... He was saying he was Messiah. They said, "We know your, we know your mother, your father. We, we, we know your brothers. We, who do you think you are?" They could, they it never dawned on them, and they lived with him for thirty plus years. The the religious, of course, they were horrified as well. The temple, good grief, they were the first ones to talk about getting rid of him because of these claims that he made. And as I say, it was his love that got him into more trouble because he loved all the wrong people. I mean, everybody believes in love, don't they? I mean, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Moses. And we do that sort of. But of course, we understand Moses never intended that we love these tax collectors. He never intended us to love prostitutes. He only intended us to love people like us. For the others, well, God is a God of punishment. And so they went on. You could say after the natural matter, that's what got him crucified. But he came to remove the great illusion, the great lie, the awful darkness that mankind was separated from God. That was a satanic lie. Did you hear me? Because the lie is still around. That human beings are separated from God because of what they've done. And Jesus came to remove that lie and say, look, I am one of you, and I live in the presence of my Father. And I've come to bring you with me. This this is the destiny for which you humans were created. The very fact that God became one of us removes that lie forever. Separated, God became one of us. He said, "I, I, I can't get any closer. That's his name, Emmanuel, God with us. 
And only the God who becomes man can do that and bring us to where he is. There's a verse in John chapter 12 and verse 24. It says, except a corn of wheat, you know, the little grain of wheat. He said, unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it's by itself alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, then it brings forth much fruit. And I know a great deal of you listening to me have never seen a grain of wheat uh, and you've never been in a cornfield. But let me tell you, when do you know that the wheat is ready for harvest? How do you know that? It is when all of the grains in the ear of the wheat are exactly the same as the one that you put in the ground a few months ago that died and now has brought forth much fruit. The fruit is exactly the same as that which went in the ground. And Jesus is saying, He, this original grain of wheat, has, is going to fall into the ground and die. But why is that? In order that he may bring forth others exactly the same as him. Humans in whom God, through the Holy Spirit, shall live. Humans who shall be identified as Christ in them. Humans who, by sheer grace and gift, are living as this ordinary original is living. Do you understand? He is God in our flesh. Ordinary. Breakfast in the morning. Carpenter shop. And he says, I am going to fall into the ground and die. His blood will be shed and he will carry us with him. And he will bring us into death so that all the twisted brokenness that Satan brought upon us will be buried forever. And he will rise again and he will bring us with him. And through the Holy Spirit of Christ living in us, he brings forth a human race in whom God lives. And in the glorious ordinariness of life, we live his extraordinary life. Did you, do, you, do you get that? Wake up. This is the gospel. It's not that you're going to heaven when you die. Oh, no. Find that in the Bible if you can. No, it is that you would begin to live in heaven now that into you comes heaven himself. He's been there. He's never left you. And now you wake up to realize he's in you. And realizing that he's in you, he is your life. This is your ordinary life. When you eat breakfast, you're eating breakfast in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that's not an odd thing for him. He learned to do that in 30 years of doing it, you see. And when you take a shower, he's in you and it's not an odd place for him to be because he washed his humanity every day.
Did you get what I'm saying? The holy life of Jesus is now your holy life, for he dwells in you through the Spirit. And holiness isn't that rigid, miserable, pince nez on their nose religious who are pecking at you and saying you didn't do this and you didn't do that. Holiness is the very love of God, the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit now living in you. And you realize your belovedness and you see yourself through the eyes of God's love and you become then a center that out of you flows gently and quietly the same love, God love. That that's, see, we know his joy, a joy not based on what you got and possessions and things going your way, but a joy that originates in God himself and rises from within you, transcends everything else. And the peace of God, it passes human comprehension. Huh. We, we, I say we, there's usually four or five of us. We meet every Thursday. There's um, my, my associate, Andrew, and Marshall from our, our church in Bandera, and um, then assorted pastors, lay leaders. and We, we meet in, in a restaurant um, for breakfast every Thursday morning, and it goes on for about two hours. And um, I, I was thinking, uh, here, here we sit, and there are times when the sense of presence is at that table, when we're sharing, especially with other pastors, the reality of Christ living in us and the reality of love that encompasses the whole human race. And 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 I, I'm, I'm very serious what, what is at that table sometimes, or quietly, with laughter and, you know, pass the pepper and um, eggs over easy, you know, it's ordinary. And yet at that table, we are plunging into the depths of God. And, and, and the waitress who comes, and she's a very interesting gal, um, because, you know, we sit there for two hours. We've been there for three sometimes. And it is a place where you do that. And and so she's not there for tips because, I mean, the tables don't move too fast. And yet she does it with such, what, I say joy. She she really enjoys serving and she serves us and it shows and she's never telling us it's time to go and she never puts the bill down under your nose. And, and I thought, you know, here we sit with the the overwhelming sense of sitting here eating breakfast inside the Holy Trinity and, and talking of the love and the wonder of God and we're being served by someone who, and I have no idea, so this isn't a judgment, but I doubt under normal circumstances that she knows that she is actually expressing the, the life and, and desire of the Holy Trinity in that she's serving us. And is doing it with with love, just as a waitress. But she's actually an expression of the Holy Trinity, whether she knows that or not. And I thought, here we sit, 
We don't, we don't, she doesn't, we, no, nobody in the restaurant is looking over there and saying, do you see that great light? Do you, do you see that, the, the lightning? What's happening at that table? No, they're all, I mean, we merge into the crowd. But isn't that just exactly as it should be? Ordinary, ordinary. We're speaking. And the very voice of Jesus is in all our voices. And we're being taught by the Holy Spirit as we put the potatoes in our mouth. You see, so ordinary. And and she's dressed in blue jeans and she comes and she serves and presents us the checks and she does it with a smile. And There's so much going on here and nobody notices it. No one realizes that at that table on a Thursday morning we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and no one notices it. And somehow that's awfully right, you see. And I, I hear people uh, and they say, I'm seeking the will of God. And I say, why? Why? <laughs> why on earth would you be taking all this time seeking the will of God? Well, they don't always come out with it plainly, but I, I, if I could paraphrase all the answers I've heard, it means that the will of God has got to be something greater than what's going on in my life right now. The will of God must be grander. There must be a greater sense of destiny than my ordinary life. I mean, all I do, I look after the kids and I go shopping and I come home and I cook. I go to work and I... Hmm, sounds interesting. Actually, your life right now sounds very much like the life that God had when he became flesh and walked in Nazareth, you know. Interesting, isn't it? We should realize that our ordinary lives are the will of God because in that ordinariness, the Holy Trinity dwells. And we are actually interacting with the love of God. And out of us, there is the energy of God's love in the simplest way, not in knock over a wall away, but just being. One lady, you know, back in the 1980s when people were always waiting for a word from God. And she came and she said to me, I need a word from God. I need to know the will of God. Oh, no. And I said, and I must admit, I was being a little facetious in order to say what I've just said. But I, I, I said, thus says the Lord, go home and clean your refrigerator. And uh, she didn't. Well, I explained after what I meant. But that is what I meant. The will of God is not a place. The will of God is not some explosive something in your life. The will of God is you. The will of God is that he dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. That's the will of God. So ordinary, though. So ordinary. People say, if I went to the mission field, that would be the will of God. Well, I've been to the mission field, many mission fields, traveled all over the world to mission fields. You know, it's so ordinary. And I look, and I've talked to some of the missionaries, and they're already getting upset with being there because they thought that, you see. It's the will of God. I go to the mission field. I go into Africa, and I live in a mission station. Well... I've been there. It's interesting because do you know what they do? They get up in the morning. They do their bathroom stuff. They have breakfast. 
Then they're in a place where they don't speak the language, so that's tough. Do you understand what I'm saying? Wherever you go in life, it is very ordinary. It only is big and grand in your imagination. And in that ordinary, so there's no lights around you and you don't look like God's man of faith and power, but there dwells in you the living, loving God who comes to us in Jesus, who carried us in his own self to death and resurrection and now dwells in you by the Spirit. Come on, Bible school students, you're listening to me? I've been to many Bible schools, lectured in many, many Bible schools. And I, I ask the question, so where do you think you're going after this? And I, is it possible But everybody has the same answer? Oh, we're going to have this great ministry. We're going to build a mega church. It's going to be the biggest one in the county, biggest one in the state. I don't think so. Why don't you recognize the glorious ordinariness of God? All ministry begins by you transforming or bringing to people the transforming gospel. And that gospel is not, are you saved? The gospel is, don't you know who you are? You're the one that was included in the cross and resurrection and Christ lives in you. Wake up and realize that you're living in the glorious it's not it's not getting a golden ticket to heaven it is living in the love of god in the ordinariness of life and one more thing because i feel i am addressing people right now i was talking to a person who had an extraordinary well, what? It was a salvation, it was a deliverance, it's all those big words, from an accident where everyone else was killed and they walked away. And now they feel this sort of guilt that they walked away, but also the feeling there must be some great destiny for me to fulfill, uh, otherwise I would not have been saved like this. And I have tried to tell them, You've always been in that destiny. It's called human life. Now maybe you you will see that you have been saved from that accident in order to simply live an ordinary life as an extraordinary person of Christ living in you. Do you get in? You're, You're not defined by your parents. Fame is something to do with the darkness. I asked, there's some kids, and I mean they were kids, 10, 11-year-olds, and I said, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they said, to be famous. I got that from you know where. That's certainly not the mind of God. But I said, what do you mean by famous? And one of them said, I'll never forget, they said, when, when everybody in the country, in the world, speaks my name, everybody knows I exist, everybody adores me, then I'll be famous. And that, that's what I want to be in life. Hmm. Have you ever told your children that before they were even conceived in the womb, before they were fashioned to be who they are in the womb, 
that the Holy Trinity spoke their name. Do you realize he spoke your name before you were conceived? It says so in Jeremiah. Do you realize that it was his fingers who fashioned you? in your mother's womb. Do you realize, like Psalm 22 says, that as you came forth in a rush of water, it was his hands that caught you? You talk about fame. You were known and named by Father to the Son, Son to the Father in the Holy Spirit before your conception. Because you're human and you were created to be the place where God made his dwelling. And that's why Jesus came to bring you to that. that that's, that's the goal. That, when he said it's finished, that's what was finished. That you through his death and resurrection can live in this dimension. And we're all looking for some big thing to happen. It's happened. Wake up. Await your destiny. In Christ, your ordinary human life is the most extraordinary life on the planet. You are amazing. You're astonishing beyond words. You're living the life of God, Christ Jesus, in your humanity. As you eat your breakfast and go to work and clean the house, Do you realize that it is a love of God expressed through you? You're looking after your children. You're cleaning the house. That's the love of God expressed in you. Do you realize you're going to work at some level? You're serving another. So you leave a question mark wherever you go. They see the love of God in you, but they don't understand any more than they did Jesus yet. They will. Well, I've gone over time. Forgive me. But the God who was unnoticed is also the God who dwells in you. You're unnoticed. My extraordinary brothers and sisters, rejoice and be glad that Christ is your life. And know the blessing of God who is almighty love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you with the opening of your eyes, the awakening of your inmost self to discover who you are in Christ Jesus in this world. For you're in this world, but no more of it than Christ himself was and is. For as he is, so are you in this world. To that end, I bless you into this week. And that's the way it is.